Hello everybody, thanks again for tuning in to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode we are joined by Jules Taylor. I really wanted to get them on the show because I just really wanted to hang out with them. So that's what we did. We got into discussions on MAGA communism, PSI, that evolved into cults in Marxism, Leninism, philosophy. We talked about music because Jules is a professor in music. We talk about a lot of things and it was all really interesting. And I can't wait to speak to them again. So here is the interview with the host of No Easy Answers Pod, a philosophy podcast where they discuss obviously philosophy, the history of it, the future of it and consciousness, as well as the producer of Working People Pod. That's a very popular pod that people have probably heard of because it interviews workers from up and down the United States and, you know, shares their experience and is enjoyed by many. So we talk about that as well. If you do find this podcast interesting, you'd like to support us, please support us on patreon.com slash lumpenpodcast. I wasn't able to join Jules in the video call for this interview because my webcam is broken and I'm too poor to replace it. So it would be amazing to do video interviews with people in the future so that people could like see my reactions and see that I'm just a totally genuine person. Like sometimes my heart breaks and nobody can see it. It's hard to translate that over the microphone. (laughs) But fortunately, this is like a kind of fun podcast. So no heart breaks this time until the end. And then we've got to wait for the next episode. (laughs) So without further ado, here's the podcast with Jules Taylor. Insidious, uh, we should say. So the conversations are are a bit more challenging down here, right? And, And I say all that to say that like... The people around me, had uh, my parents, uh, have a middle-class, nice lifestyle. When they get pulled over, it's by Officer Hernandez or something like that. Some uh, Hispanic last-named person, uh, a cop is usually a Latino in this part. And so you don't get this sort of like, you don't get the, quite the racial dynamic, and it's a lot different in, in this section. So the people around me were kind of well-insulated from uh, understanding these sort of uh, sea change in American politics that was ushered in by Trump making those statements uh, and and the sort of great peril that I found them all to be in, I don't think they quite understood at that moment. Uh, and maybe they don't now either, um, because I'm really the only overtly political person in my family at this point. But I think by the time the first Bernie, uh, you know, the first Bernie um, campaign was done, uh, I had already considered myself a full-on communist, and I think maybe I was still toying with the idea of, like, where do I fall on the XY axis? Is it, like, anarcho-communist? Is it, like, more anarchist? Or is it, do I believe in some sort of reform? And, um, but, I mean, if you just if you just read enough Marx, if you just read enough, like, you know, George Jackson, or if you, uh, if you read Fanon or Amy Césaire, or if you uh, even start to understand, you know, like, the, you know, Du Bois on some level, like all this stuff should uh, speak to an argument against reform. And um, so anyway, so what my tendency at this point, I'm a Marxist-Leninist. Um, I have some Maoist tendencies. I, I, I don't uh, I, I don't particularly care for the, you know, infighting or argumentative aspects of MLs versus MLMs. Um, but I, I, I definitely am a Marxist-Leninist, but I've also like sort of recently broke with a lot of the 
tendencies that have emerged. Like, I'm not a patri- patriotic socialist. Are you sure? I, I heard that you was. Oh, did you hear that I was? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, some fucking assholes from CPI or something probably said <laughs> shit online. Yeah. Uh, I imagine. I'm messing. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure y'all have kept up with that nonsense that's gone on, you know. I mean, it's it's wild, man, that, like, not only was CPI a registered cult, but, like, now the guy that they look up to and read was also a cult leader in Lyndon LaRouche. I mean, it's like, they all, um, I don't know, man, it's sad on one level, because you look at them and, and you know that they're, like, I don't even think they would deny at this point that, like, CPI was a sex cult, or that... Uh, maybe they probably would on that. They're still trying to defend CPI, but they definitely can't defend like uh, you know the Lyndon I mean, LaRouche shit. You know the history is all there. I mean, so. even if it wasn't consciously a sex cult, uh, but it obviously turned out to be that way. So yeah. the way I see that whole organization, that effort from everybody who probably had the best of intentions, is the same way that I see practically every single organization by communists that don't specifically focus on base building, dual power. Uh, that's uh, serving the people. I mean, if you don't have them like internal principles and practice for your organization, like. I'm not going to be that impressed. I mean, that's what I'm trying to build with my comrades. And, you know, so that's how I see that. If you want actual change, you've got to serve the people and meet their needs. That's basically just all my practice and all my life is about now. Um, So it's always a shame just to see wasted potential in, in any way, shape or form. But it's even worse when you referenced in social commentary on Twitter. Um, about this MAGA communism, um, it's even a shame when these viral trends get, you know, get swept up into people's, you know, vulnerability to try and find sense in this world and, you know, and, and like the, the society is so, I mean, I'm, I'm going off on one, but the society focuses on individualism and like machismoism and the ego so much that, you know, obviously these, trends of fucking mega communism and not speak out to people who are feeling so vulnerable and small and weak so you know it's just a sad sight either way but i mean i've never said anything on it on, about it on revolutionary lump and radio that was a first so i just felt like clearing the air there while we were on there well i i think it's it's wild man like you can go through an entire you know a four-year degree on political science and uh and they don't ever probably tell you that like political parties can turn into uh cults very quickly and 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 how there seems to be a correlation there between like political activism and the formation of cults and you know just in the past like <clears throat> the past few years i mean what have we had we've had dpi dissolve we've had black hammer dissolve and i mean there's a lot of Folks who wouldn't even claim them as part of the organized left, uh, you know, I, I get that. But there's still people that are like, you know, proclaiming to be on the left who are, uh, whether they, I mean, at this point now, I mean, if you think of someone like Caleb Maupin, I mean, his legacy has to be that he had a registered business that was actually a cult. You know, you think about someone like Ghazi, uh, who led Black Hammer, and that dude, you know, he's been arrested and charged and uh and he was holding someone captive and there's all sorts of reports of like sexual deviancy happening within that organization that was what? yeah no the black hammer there's other shit that's gone on there too um and it makes me think back to something like uh 
you know, like something like the Jim Jones stuff. I mean, you know, like in, I, I read there's an article that was written by um, I'm only to say I, there's an article that was on Cosmonaut for a while that was like the left has a cult problem. And it's kind of true when you think about it, man, is these these leftist, you know, orgs, they they come up, they dissolve. And in the wake, they, you know, they stay in a lot of the uh, I don't know. I mean, like you could look up and I mean, think about think about Revcom right now. I mean, Bob of is still out there leading Revcom, you know? And if you ever join Revcom, if you go to any one of their meetings, they just want you to read Bob Avakian's books. And they're going to talk about Bob Avakian, about how he's a great man and he's the only one prepared to lead the revolution. And, um, you know, that's a cult. You know, but th- there's a problem, like, ultimately. And, I mean, I don't know how to form an episode on this and stuff, but if we're talking about all this, I mean, I think that, that there there is a, the left has a cult problem. And... Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's wild. I mean, I don't know, man. Like, I, I I joined Black Hammer for a second, and it was it was wild. I I, I was on a phone call on a Zoom uh, meeting when they announced that. I mean, stop me if y'all are, if you're not familiar with like Black Hammer and what they did. I mean, I guess for listeners that aren't, they they found some land in Colorado and they talked about building a city called Hammer City, and they created a GoFundMe. Uh, had several thousand dollars that were donated there. Uh, they went to Colorado to this land that they found and they camped out there and, and some of their members almost died because of just the elements and shit. And it was wow. a disaster of a trip. Yeah. Y- y'all can look this stuff up. This really happened, man. And so, but I say all that because like when they announced that I was on that zoom call with them. Um, and Ghazi, Announced this, which by the way, he had like a portrait of Karl Marx with a clown nose. I mean, uh, you know, uh, in, in his background, which that should be the first indication from this motherfucker, right? But anyway, so, uh, so there's that aspect, but like he literally played back a scene from a Netflix documentary called Wild Wild Country about, um, some Indian folks who had found a plot of land, uh, maybe in the Midwest or maybe in Oregon or something somewhere. And, and it was a literal documentary about a cult. And that was the first call where he pitched this idea of Black Hammer. Um, and, I'm, I'm sorry, the, of Hammer City. And, and buying the land. And, uh, but that's like straight out of like a cult 101. If you know anything about cults, they, you know, they try to isolate you from your family. They try to, you know, uh, get you to live like in a place where they control. Or they do something wild like that where they buy a plot of land and they go full like David Koresh or something, you know, or full, Sort of Branch Davidian or, uh, you know, sovereign citizen thing like uh, that happened in Ruby Ridge. That's what the they were trying to do there. You know, that's what uh, the, the situation in Waco was about, you know. But inevitably, these uh, sort of like the, the, these cults turn into something, you know, sexually uh, uh, fucked up. And, uh, and you know, the, it, the name every, every cult that we've talked about, there's been some degree of like sexual misconduct. Uh, so y'all didn't know we were going to talk about cults and all sorts of crazy shit. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, from a serious standpoint, would say it's not that you can just you know have an organization and then it turns into a cult and then everybody does all sexual deviance. It's just a case of you know it takes two to tango. These people are going into these places without very much self awareness and. They are like again vulnerable. They are like 
the consumers, you know, they're looking to consume and they're looking to have a hobby, they're looking to do these things and they're not taught. Sat down and look, learn to be a historical materialist, <laughs> learn dialectical materialism, obviously make sense of the world, or you'll make a bumbling fool of yourself that's going to be taken advantage. And, like, I mean, you know, all, all sexual, all violence, like, um, I'm trying to think of the proper word from it, like even crimes of passion, you know, stem, stem from what happens in fucking bourgeois society anyway. You know, it's what happens, like soldiers kill and rape and pillage and shit, like, and they do it legally. And, you know, people look for fucking power wherever they can and they fucking punch down. And this is fucking why we need a fucking utopia and why we fucking... I mean, it's, it's just crazy that, obviously, the... Like, the internet hasn't ex- existed forever, it's somewhat new. So, like, Marxism and so- socialism, communism, discourse, which all should be the same thing, but it's some some reason separate nowadays. All these things, like, are new online, and people are dealing with it in different ways, and uh, it's just shit to see this whole MAGA phenomenon pop up, because you have people like us ended up talking about all cults and things to fucking warn people to just obviously make it like be careful yeah yeah i mean i i think uh anytime you're trying to i don't know build off of a conservative populist movement uh you're you're ideologically baseless to start at that point you know because populism is something that codifies around a sort of vanishing signifier you know like once the primary grievance that everyone is sort of uh organizing in a populist way around uh once that kind of dissolves uh that movement kind of dissolves with it most of the time or it's unpredictable in the way that one might be able to steward it at that point i mean if you think about i mean the left has dealt with this for a long time if you think about occupy i mean there was no you know, party of vanguard revolutionaries ready to step to the front and lead the people to a proletarian revolution. It was just like there was nobody there to do that, you know, and uh, any sort of attempt was spontaneity or at least tailing a, uh, you know, tailing the masses at that point, um, which are incorrect by, by doctrine and practice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you look at what the... Uh, Canadian truck drivers with the vaccine mandate shit, that shit went away really quick. And, and it, it, it went away as, as quickly as it like came about, you know, I mean, there, there was like some US attempts to start something similar, but that I don't think anything ever came of that. Um, but the point is that like it, it that stuff's gonna vanish. And so any sort of like, uh, thorough revolutionary, uh, practice is not going to revolve around, especially some, a, a populist sentiment from the right. Um, and, I don't understand any sort of, you know, communist who is attempting to sort of unify with uh, MAGA uh, people at this point. I mean, it's it's dumb, dude. But like, all, I I just see like these different, I, and and I hate to I, I hate to even like say that they're different factions of the left because they're not really like factions or a party or they're they're like a singular group of like five individuals that have an outweighed sort of uh, uh, effect on the discourse online. Uh, there, yeah. There's a bunch of twelve-year-olds in a Discord server that you know that that are into magic communism because it's like 
aesthetically cool and 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 I don't know, it's not straight Pure opportunism. Marks, you know? Yeah, it's opportunism, man. But I also think it's like there's a lot of members that follow those guys that are like just not um, that are not revolutionaries. They're they're you know they're either people who are young who are part of a group mentality. Um, or they're um, people who are focusing on not on like class war or not on you know class solidarity or or not even on uh, you know s- struggling to bring about like a dictatorship of the proletariat like none of these principled ways or reasons of going about revolutionary work they're sidetracked and focused on you know things like Malthusianism or or, or green fascism or um, degrowth. Or uh, any number of things that, yeah, sure, Marx wrote about these things, but like it's kind of, that's not the point, you know? It's like the, the point is class war, you know? Um, the point is not uh, misguided views on Russia leading you to think that Russia is waging an anti imperialist aggressive front against Ukraine. You know, like it's, there, there's all sorts of weird, incorrect shit that, like, on its face, it's like, how did anyone actually like do an ideological 720 into this like misguided fucking uh weird dumb opportunist uh sort of way of going about things you know like and i, and I won't name any more names on this stuff but but you know as well as i know that this whole patriotic socialism shit has turned into magic communism uh that like a lot of these magic communist people are uh you know more if they're not like studying degrowth and 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 Malthusianism and and uh, if they're not doing that, then they're like, I don't know, like like fucking reading Dugan, you know? Um, and and so yeah, it, it's a bunch of shit that's not communism going on by people still calling themselves communists, you know? So, thank you for those comments and those thoughts. Again, it's something I've thought about a lot. And haven't really managed to put into a word, but yeah, I agree with a lot of that, and I could even expand on it further, but um, they, they honestly don't deserve it. Yeah, yeah. So, you're the host of No Easy Answers podcast, are you not? What can you tell us about it? Well, I started a show called No Easy Answers, and it's a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. And it started during May of 2020, uh, towards the height of that first wave of COVID when, uh, everyone was kind of afraid. And I was living in New York and there were, um, you know, semi trucks of coolers for bodies at that point and people were dying all around. And I, uh, went to a very existential place, man. I started really thinking about meaningfulness and not necessarily purpose and, uh, sort of teleological sort of way, but, in terms of like, uh, you know, this life, what does it mean when like, when a lot of your identity has been stripped from you? As a musician, I lost a whole season worth of gigs I had booked, you know, I didn't feel inspired to write or play or, um, or make any sort of music. And with that, a lot of like, my answers to the question of what do I do now, uh, went with that, you know, um, there was no immunity at that point. So there was no like, stepping out and performing there was no going to do sound uh and help others play because there were just no performances so so you know i i went to a very existential place of like you know what did i do before music consumed my life and uh what does it mean to not have the people around you that you want to have around you 
um, what does this in this space of reflection mean? And uh, so I had a few episodes where I started like talking about like uh, moral theory uh, and and sort of the influence Christianity has had on moral theory and my own sort of personal uh, uh, sort of thought processes on my my own belief system of atheism and what exactly that means and uh, but no easy answers quickly kind of evolved into a an interview based podcast where I speak to uh, mostly Marxist professors uh, about different philosophers. We had the the great Todd May on the show on episode number 16. I've had other wonderful philosopher friends or people that I, I can call friends now, which is great, like Daniel Tutt when we talked about Nietzsche, um, Ronald Wiener talking about Heidegger and Nietzsche, uh, people like uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum, uh, where we spoke about his book, uh, War for Eternity. Um, so a lot of, you know, authors, people who have written books about philosophers or about current contemporary politics. Um, but no easy answers is something where I, it, it's largely a function off of like what I am interested in or what I happen to be interested in during a phase. Um, so there's four episodes just on death and interrogating what the meaning of death is. There's, Holy uh, shit. Yeah, there's uh, six to eight episodes on fascism where I talk to, you know, Benjamin Teitelbaum, Dr. Ronald Beener, uh, talk to uh, 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 Dr. Richard Polt, who wrote a book on Heidegger, uh, Daniel Tutt on Nietzsche, right? There's also, uh, uh, damn, I'm forgetting his name now, um, uh, Gabriel Rockhill uh, on fascism as well. Um and yeah, so there's there's a ton of that stuff there. Um, I, I did some a little bit of work on like some of the like I did three episodes on Dugan and a little bit. I, on ha, how the fuck do you even know half of these people? Like, did you study them in the oh, past, dude. or you like is have you always been into philosophy, or did you pick it up later on in life? Like, where did that come from? Just knowing these people and you know these d- different resources and thoughts. Well, you know, I I always read philosophy because, like, if you look on my camera up top there, those are philosophy books that my mom got me when I was a kid. She was an English oh, teacher. Oh, holy smokes! So, there's, um, there so must like, be at least twenty five books there. Yeah, like right in front of that red spot is a Lenin book, but like the rest of those are are you know Western philosophy and the canon and stuff. But like, not that I always read those, but I always attempted to read those. And philosophy seemed like. Uh, you know, the most challenging stuff to read that made the least amount of sense and only smart people understood or what have you. So I was kind of fascinated with being able to do that. Or so understand. would it just be like collected works of a certain branch yeah, it's, or yeah, it's, miscellaneous or rant mixed or what? It's everything to, uh, from like Plato all the way to like Jameson. Um, so there's all the Aristotle stuff in there. There's Marx, there's Nietzsche. Uh, there's Spinoza. There's uh, regrettably, I don't even think there's. I don't think there's Sartre in there, but there's um, there's some Dostoevsky. Um, there, there, you know, so there's a little bit of everything. Kind of the primary works of all of them. Um, so I've always had hard copies of the stuff, and I've carried this stuff around the country before I moved back to Texas. Uh, and and so those books are like stuff that I've. I don't know, just always tried to, to, to read and understood little bits and pieces of it. When the when the pandemic came around, though, it was maybe the first time as an adult where I had, you know, when not being able to make music and, and having a lot of things, uh, I sense of 
identity taken from me, I was like, well, you know, I did read philosophy a lot. And so why don't I go back to that? And, uh, and so that's kind of how that started. But in terms of how I knew all these people, um, you know, man, I, I, my friend Max really like helped me with this. Uh, Max, the host of working people, because, you know, I told him like, I had a, I mean, there is a bit of narcissism that comes with like being a musician to like put your name on a t-shirt and pay to print that out, knowing that you can sell those, right? To place your face on the cover of an album, uh, to to advertise and promote your own shows. That's what, they're kind of so it's probably and, it's probably nearly every kid's dream, like in the Imperial Court. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised right. if every kid didn't want that. No, totally. I mean, my nephew's like ten, and he wants to be a YouTuber. You know, um, so yeah, there is something very individualistic and and self involved and uh, about living in the Imperial Corps and and being all these things. Totally, and uh, I have my own sort of uh, battles with that as well. You know, and I say all that to say that like in talking to Max, I was like, you know, man, I don't know if I feel comfortable and like because I feel like. What, what kind of audacity does it take a person to like read a book and then like say, hey, uh, author of this book, I'd like to talk to you and challenge some of your ideas. <laughs> you know, like there's a real fucking that comes with that shit. But he was like, look, man, he was like, if you're thinking deeply on a topic and you have, you know, questions that are like you have a sincerity to know and it's upright thought and that you seek to know the truth and like you, you are asking the question in such a way that like is in good faith to find it like if you're really asking these questions from a genuine and sort of interlocutor sort of uh, uh, point then those people should be delighted to hear from you and they will almost certainly say yes to an interview so that's I, I reached out to Todd May and I've been kind of fearless about reaching out to anybody else since Todd May because I the work of Todd May was just uh, life-changing and sort of uh, uh, belief rocking I'd say like I it challenged a lot of the ways that I felt about going about life and uh, and kind of made me better it was like uh, it, it did what, what self-help books are supposed to do you know which they're they're just a bunch of uh, weird uh eastern buddhist uh sort of derived uh mindfulness bullshit in a lot of ways uh that i've found anyway um but todd's books on death and on a meaningful life a significant life a fragile life uh all really did really amazing things that really enriched my life by reading those books and i went on to read his book on ranciere his book on post-structural post the ethics of like a post-structuralist anarchy um and I, I want to say one or two more books of Todd's stuff, but he's a philosopher that means a lot to me. Yeah, I, I, I empathize with you. I feel I have too much fun on the mic because I feel exactly how you do with many of my guests. But, um, you know, you've you know, also got to somewhat like be professional in a way and just try and ask interview questions and not get carried away. But even though you love the person, you could speak to them for hours. Yeah, it's always difficult, and you know, like it, like yourself, um, and many of the questions with revolutionary lumpen radio, looking at you know the lumpen classes and you know their revolutionary contributions throughout history, and you know shoving that in the faces of everybody who looks down on the lumpen. You know, I, I I've had the same way where I've had to speak to people to kind of make sense of it. I've often found like, um, you know, this microphone's there, so it can just 
screaming to the fucking abyss when I'm sick of capitalism. Yeah, man. But Sometimes yeah. you need to do that. For sure. <laughs> so, it also says on your profile, the uh, professor. In fact, no. Well, not that yeah. question. Let's go on to working people part because we spoke a little bit about it in the intro there, but we might want to add anything on. So, what can you tell us about working people part? You know, what kind of role have you played in such a series? Well, uh, Max found me in November of 2020. And uh, Max found me via his COVID episode. He put out a call for uh, for all the folks who had worked, essential workers, during that time to uh, record a monologue or something to send it to him for publication. And uh, so I sent him one, but I sweetened my audio before I sent it to him. And I use a nice mic and that sort of stuff. Like what I do by trade is I'm an audio engineer. I went to school for that stuff. I worked in music for years. And so um, it, it's. Uh, it's just what I do, you know, and so the stuff that he received from me was already like, it was already cooked, it was pre-sweetened, it was ready to be published, he didn't need to compress it, he didn't need to EQ, he didn't need to cut any breaths out of it, stuff like that. Um, but he basically was impressed with the way that my audio file sounded compared to everybody else's and was like, uh, you know, do you want to be a producer of a show? And I was like, yeah, I, I would love to do that because I need a reason to work with my music equipment because uh, it was you know during covid and so i wasn't writing or recording or really doing much at that point um so max brought me in uh this is the second season that i'm with him now i was with him for all of season four and we're in the middle of season five we have like 24 ish episodes into season five now and um you know max yeah like so Max is really consistent with the stuff. That's not even counting bonus episodes. There's a lot of bonus episodes that he sends me uh, as well that we put up on our Patreon. And uh, Max is Max is just brilliant. I'm just going to take a moment and like talk about Max, and maybe it'll be embarrassing to the guy or what, but I'm sure that I'm not the only guy out there who's singing Max's praises. But like Max, Max is, has like has like a literary mind in that like he can sometimes come up with metaphors that are that are brilliant <clears throat> that are like so illustrative of like what he's trying to evoke and the points he's trying to make um that it really is just like a joy editing anything the guy comes up with and oh you anyway, mean like cause sometimes he can talk in the intro and he can be like explaining it like that deep and serious and then coming in with like boom boom with this like deep po poetry thing almost <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, Max, his passion is literature, you know, so, um, and, and oh, specifically Russian literature. Yeah, he oh, is like a PhD in comparative so. literature. So, yeah, so the guy can speak and the guy can write uh, in such a way that, like, I, I, there's nothing he does that I won't try and absorb and read or watch, you know, so, and if I... Uh, was not a producer for his podcast, I would be a fan and I would still be taking in uh, his his work as well. Um, so, but yeah, Max is Max does a lot of stuff too. I mean, he's editor-in-chief at the Real News Network and they have a ton of, pro of content they put out. And um, so, and, and in the past, Max and I, Max and I have, uh, like, I mean, I'm happy and, and proud to say that I would help Max pull off some live streams that have, like, you know, like for the... Um, with the boys at the Valley Labor Report, Max uh, helped them raise $74,000 for uh, the striking miners in Alabama. 
And I want to say he raised something like $14,000 on a live stream for the striking Kellogg's workers. And, um, yeah. And, um, and you know, when my, when my mom had a health scare and needed help, I mean, I, I had to go find me and Max was kind enough to help me raise some money for her as well. I mean, so like Max is a comrade that like has been there for me and is there for people around him all the time. And, and he's such a sweet dude. Like half the reason he's tired all the time is just because he just doesn't want to let anybody down and he kind of overstretches uh, and overextends uh, himself in order to, uh, you know, keep creating content on this brutal schedule. Um, and I'm just like, you know, amazed week in, week out at the uh, prolificness that, uh, that Max, uh, of Max's work, you know, how prolific the guy is, is just nothing short of astounding. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah. So can you tell us about your music? What instruments do you play? How important has it been in your life? Well, music is like pretty much been at the core of everything I've done and everywhere I've gone. You know, I mean, the the people in my life that I'm privileged to know have probably been come. They've probably come to me from music. Um, um, you know, I started out as just like an engineer and made my way into. Uh, being an artist and it's been the sort of guiding practice of everything I've done like part of the reason why I'm even a person that's mildly you know sort of familiar with folks on the left at this point is because you know I, I one I am a musician and I've come up with like the music for working people and the music for the Valley Labor Report um, but two is like you know that I have this capability of editing and and, and, and you know producing content um that i do that is something that has uh you know gained notoriety for me not that i mean i don't really even care about the notoriety it's funny it's like i just wanted my people to listen to my music and uh and you know i don't i don't have nearly the following on my music side that i do on the politics side of things um but i would say that music is is by far the most important thing to me and it's the thing that like has necessitated me learning the skill sets that you know, that people know me for. So like video creation or audio content or no easy answers or working with Max, uh, you know, working people in, on live streams on occasion. Um, all that stuff, the only reason why I know all that stuff is because I uh, was a musician who wanted to record myself and wanted to, you know, play back my own songs uh, and and be able to like take what I take the music and tones that I hear in my head and place them between speakers. And it's just been that process that I've always tried to practice and get better at. Um, and in the, during the process of that, I was able to help other people do similar things, you know, and, um, and, and, and I also like in terms of, you know, like with music, I, I, it also like, it, it brought me a lot of professional success. Like I worked in, uh, broadcast sales for a long time. And, and I say why that's important is because like, you know, at this point now, it's like I, 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 I work in business to business. So I critique businesses and I know all about like audio video businesses because I, uh, am a musician and I come to it with a creative sort of standpoint that, that works. But it's at the end of the day, it's a, it's a creative science, you know? And, uh, and I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of losing my train of thought, but I would say that music is sort of the connectivity of every channel of my life, including what I do professionally as a day job, including what I do with Max and the podcast and no easy answers. Um, and it's what I teach. I teach, uh, the technical side of music. 
at a university in Corpus Christi. Um, and I've just had a lot of experience with it. I lived in Nashville for about 10 years and I worked as an engineer in the country music scene there. Um, I worked on some stupid big records for a moment and, um, you know, and it's just, it's like, I don't know, somehow it's earned me some like cred. I mean, people take, I lived in Nashville and worked as an engineer that goes a long way. It has a lot of purchase for it. And then I moved to New York and I lived in Woodstock and, uh, you know, there's a lot of really cool music that's come out of there. I, I made a, I produced an album that was recorded in the basement of, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the band in Big Pink, but I, you know, I was the guy who was like the technician for the studio owner that is in the basement of Big Pink where Dylan recorded uh, the basement tapes and where the band recorded their first album, Music from Big Pink. Um, so there's there's a lot of cool shit that I've done and, and it's just, it's I, it's I'm just like really fortunate to have been in a lot of really cool places at the right time, man. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I, all that to say, man, music made all that possible. You know, so that's, it is the most important thing. You know. Sick. So, what are you saying? You teach music at university now? Yeah, I teach uh, recording techniques right now, which is basically like the history of studios, the history of certain gear manufacturers, uh, the way the technology works, microphones, sound equipment, computers, uh, recording consoles, recording software, like all that stuff. Um, so, you're like a professor of rock. I am I am a professor of rock, yes. That's, that's Are you telling me that they say this though? You can actually just sit there and just make up a tune and a song in your head and then start playing it? I mean kinda. That's it's, that's not the point, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just I just wish I could so much because it's such such an amazing talent and you know, that that's something that like even the people who can't do it they all appreciate that talent, do you know what I mean? Every single person's got to love somebody playing an instrument well. I mean, come on, no matter who you are. Music's inc incredible. I, I love to dance. I love a boogie. You know, um, anybody who knows me in real life knows that's a fact. So, yeah, yeah awesome. Yeah. So, I, you know, I play, uh, my primary instrument is guitar, but, like, I play a little bit of a lot of different instruments. So I play... Uh, some lap steel and piano and a little bit of mandolin uh, and dobro. Uh, so, like, I, you know, but I have these string instruments around. They're all kind of similar. Uh, and if you can play one and kind of connect some dots, you can be a little proficient on the other. And so I, the last album I, I did called Mountain Time, I played all the instruments instead of drums and bass. But there's a, there's a lot of, like, mandolin and uh, dobro and some lap steel and stuff like that on there. Um, that's that's freaking sick. Yeah, yeah love it. Uh, singing too just blow, blows your mind. Um, it's like how I feel making a really good episode once it's edited really good and it's got some good music in it. I do feel a little bit high once once that's fully published because that's the closest I'll ever get to like making a song or like a record or anything, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I know it's kind of, it seems like a magic trick to people who can't do it, you know, or people who have tried and maybe have, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that um, because it was something that seemed very elusive to me when I was younger and it was like a puzzle I had to figure out. Um, 
and you know once you do it the first couple times you're really excited about those results and then you get kind of a shock uh when you realize the stuff you've written wasn't very good at all and actually writing is very challenging and now you understand that like you could write 50 more songs and none of them would be something you hear on the radio perhaps um and what does it take to get to the point where your discern your, your ability to discern is on the level with creating something out of thin air on your coffee table with like a pen and a paper and a guitar something that can move people affect people that can be remembered and maybe hummed along to later on or taken with them you know like uh music is is and songwriting specifically is like what led me to all other aspects of music i consider myself at my core a songwriter um so yeah it's uh it's a magic trick dude and it's it's you know part of me considers it my magic trick but like it's not a magic trick that i even control as well like i'm still at this stage after having written songs for like 20 fucking years i'm still you know like debating on a daily basis like is this a uh, a muscle that you have to work out with discipline every day and and commit yourself to a sort of habitual writing technique or is it something that comes in waves like a muse that you have to take while the iron's hot or whatever while you have to you know do with it what you can when you can uh whenever it comes along uh so maybe it's a little bit of both i don't know but like you know some of the some of the the, the songs that i and and it's not even me that i am the judge on it it's like the songs that people come to me afterwards and tell me that touch them like some a lot of those songs they might come to me in like 20 minutes you know sometimes they just come to you um so it's just a matter of uh how much of a how much of a like of an antenna or a receptor for that sort of thing can you make of yourself you know so part of the reason why i have guitars up is like i just want to be able to like grab a guitar i don't need to pull one out of a case that's an extra step you know it's uh if i feel it and i want to play i want to be able to reach for it and i want it to be playable right then and there you know yeah 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 that's interesting and thoughts and that kind of mysticism behind music like how we receptors or kind of be like practiced so I mean, we've only got a couple more questions here, but I guess let's just lead that into the next question here that I wanted to throw at you on the fly. As I know that you're into your philosophy, as we talked about earlier. So let me ask you this question. Are you an existentialist or do you believe in free will? Oof. Yeah. Um... Well, there's a guy that has a podcast called Into the Void, and he recently, and I forget his name, but he was recently on a podcast called What's Left of Philosophy. And I have been seriously thinking about the points that he's brought up since then. So when you ask me if I'm an existentialist or if I believe in free will, um, much of what I have to say on that uh, would come directly from that conversation uh that happened on that podcast episode um but oh you were on this podcast episode i was i was not on that podcast episode but the things that were said on there have really started to shape the way i've been thinking about a lot of things um and it's more spinoza and determinism than it is like sort of sartre and uh free will uh and the reason why i say that is because like you know there are so many 
there was like uh there's there's a Thomas Nadel wrote a paper called Moral Luck, I want to say. And he talks about certain aspects of moral luck. Like there are certain things like a lottery of existence, right? So like we don't get to choose like where we're born, our gender, uh, who our parents are, uh, what the regionalism and practice of conventional, you know, practices are. Uh, there's a lot of things that we don't get to choose, right? And if you are already on the political left, then you're probably already inclined to believe that uh, all of these sort of play in as factors uh, to the opportunities one receives in life, and you're already predisposed to the notion that, like, that there that there are so many things that are not directly our fault due to choices or what have you that will determine certain ways and outcomes of our life. Um, so to that extent, there's I don't think it's a very far walk from being on the left and thinking that there's like this lottery that most people don't win. Uh, it's not a very far walk from people being born into systems and institutions and situations, not of their choosing, over to uh, everything is determined and there is no such thing as free will. Um, it's a shorter walk than one might imagine. So uh, that aspect, to think that like even that, yeah, I'm able to like get up and make slight modifications to my environment, but there are ultimately things that cause me to make those modifications in my environment, right? There are things that make cause me to make these choices that are still things that are beyond my control that I have no say into, that I did not agree to, that I inherited of simply just being here in the throneness of our existence, you know? So, um, yeah, like, do I believe, I, I think it's more, I think it's more Spinoza than Sartre myself too. And I've been leaning more that way ever since that I've listened to that conversation. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, there, but there's part of me that's still really attached to this beautiful idea of free will and the radical individualism of Sartre and the sort of, you know, body without organs of Deleuze and the sort of like, we are, we contain multitudes. We are a non-totalizable, intensive multiplicity, uh, as like Taylor from Machinic Unhappy Conscious, uh, Machinic Unconscious Happy, Happiness Happy Hour would say, uh, but yeah, dude, like, that's an, a really interesting question. And it's wild because I think I'm more on the determinism side of things now than I am with the, uh, radical individualism. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. So, who did you say was the most recent authors who have talked about determinism? Um, Thomas Nagel, who wrote the stuff about like moral luck and like constitutive luck and all these things. He basically wrote about all these different things that are like beyond our control that we inherit. And Sartre was talking about free will. Sartre, I mean, all of Sartre is like this radical individualism of, of, you know, free will, I feel like, you know, I mean, Sartre is, uh, uh, he is the sort of, I mean, he's the guy who speaks to the, uh, existence precedes essence. And so like, you know, like he, this eternal, external, uh, judgment of the good, this sort of external telos of the cosmos is non-existent and man is you know is is here and knows not where he's been knows not where he's going and knows not why he's here uh and that man is the sole container of the good 
um, all that to me is very is very Sartre and what I take from Sartre uh, in that aspect. Uh, but yeah, that's also um, it's also very it's it's also a large, it's it's out of Heidegger and Nietzsche really, like the death of God and the and Dasein and all that stuff. But Sartre took a lot of that stuff from uh, being in time into being in nothingness, you know. Yeah, sick. So there you go. Thank you for those suggestions. Uh, our listeners do have resources to go to if they want to dig into those questions more. I do uh, in particular because I want to get my head around it. I want to understand the meaning of life and why we're here and everything <laughs> to do with shit like that. So, yeah, I've got my own thoughts on it, but uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a very it's not a very optimistic perspective that Sartre has to offer. Uh, I mean, when I say optimistic, I mean he's like, oh yeah, free will, radical individualism. You can make you know meaning yourself and uh, make yourself into the, the the you know you're the sole arbiter of the good, right? So you can make yourself into this thing which you consider good, and and all that is optimistic. But man, like uh, that we are in a that we exist within an indifferent cosmos, you know, a cosmos that is indifferent to us, that we are alone and that there is no external telos for our existence or a source of objective morality, um, that we are alone in this uh, and crying out for meaning in the sort of Albert Camus sort of sense, you know, that man asks for meaning and there's the indifferent cosmos which refuses to yield it to us. Like, like that is... There's not a whole lot of optimism in that sort of atheist, existentialist sort of perspective, um, but I, I kind of live in that live in that area, and and I do think that there is a radical freedom uh, to be found within a sort of materialist atheism uh, that is goes beyond I think where a lot of atheists would leave, you know, because like a lot of atheists still purport to believe in like a soul or karma, or reincarnation to a certain degree, and, you know, I follow the existentialists where that's, you know, to the utter sort of sense of temporality that life is all that we have is here and now, and uh, that it could be taken from us, you know, and, and like a book mid-sentence, and like a novel without any sort of resolution or, or cleaning up of, uh, of untold things, you know, like it's, life is temporal to me, and that forms this outlook of like these at least for me that like while i'm here i have to create art and beauty and goodness in the world and encourage solidarity and uh and so it's i don't know man it's like it's it's not a very optimistic like i said you know perspective or ideology to have but it's one that creates a sense of urgency to create beauty and art and 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 sort of beauty in the world you know so yeah thank you for that i also just proven to me just how much I need to just get my um, philosophy of life or what I think of life and reality just out on a microphone and maybe just start the discussion those super existential questions with people because I think that would be really fun and interesting. Yeah. Right. Maybe between us we can just kind of just have some, just throw some thoughts out there of what we'd like to see. Once we finally won this world. Oh. So that's it. We're, we're building utopia, socialism, communism, you name it, something along them lines. 
What are we going to see? So if we're building the utopia of the revolution's tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, the revolution's done and the utopia and the utopia is built. And then the day after that, what, what do we want to see in the utopia? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, if everything's already taken care of and then I would love to see some like sober bars. Um, I would love to see like uh, a place where like people can go to have a wide selection of non-alcoholic beer and sit and read in 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 normal noise levels uh and like like normal volume music and i would like to be able to sit and enjoy a non-alcoholic beer and read in a bar setting uh without drunk people like i first had my non-alcoholic beer around the Palestine Action Campfire. And I gotta tell you, it just tasted like just beer. It was like, and it was just like pleasant because I was having, I was having like a cigarette as well. I don't know whether you included that in your, in oh, your, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. smoke free. But, um, yeah, it was, it was enjoyable. It was pleasant. It was like the same kind of atmosphere, but yeah, you just don't have the drunkenness. What else would you like yeah, to see? Yeah, man. What else would I would like to see? Um, yeah, I would like to see, uh, I mean, that's really all I got, man. It's just a place where I can have a non-alcoholic beer without drunk people and have a book, you know. Um, yeah, I gotta yeah, say, I've mean, never considered that. Um, yeah, I um, mean, there's no, it, it's like there's no place for, like, sober people to congregate and, and have, uh, you know, have a beer or something, a fake oh, beer. Oh, shit. You know? Now that you mention it. Yeah, there's only a few places, isn't he? Wow. Never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I just, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, 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 I spend a lot of time in bars playing music and stuff like that. I consider bars like a place where I go and, and, and work, you know? Um, but I would say that like, since I've stopped drinking a couple years back, um, I do miss like the bar vibe and the scene. I just, you know, most of the time, non-alcoholic beers and afterthought at these places. And, um, and while that's okay, I understand that. And I'm not like, I, my major point in contention with world politics is not that we need more selections of non-alcoholic beer, obviously, right? Um, but if the, if the utopia was like done and everything was taken care of, then I would be like, yeah, can we just get some fucking non-alcoholic beer, uh, in this fucking joint so that people like me can, sit around and like pretend to drink and, and still enjoy like that sort of, I don't know, the shared feeling of everyone ingesting a cocktail or something, you know, uh, I kind of, I kind of miss that, you know, if I'm ever over there stateside, I'll have a non-alcoholic beer with you. Yeah, I would love that, man. I, I can find some real shitty non-alcoholic beer for us to have. Um, somehow, like somehow, like the the shittier the beer now, the better it is. I don't understand that either. Like, um, like you know, when I was drinking, I'd want to have like nice IPAs, and uh, and now I'm like, oh shit, is that non-alcoholic Bush Light? That's this is this is great, man. I can't believe you have this. This is wonderful. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I can't explain it. But the shittier the beer is now, the better. Yeah, I've got no standards, but either way, you get high off the people. 
Like uh, American beer is like having sex in a canoe. It's it's fucking close to water. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I think I've heard that one before, but I've never heard it with American beer. But oh, the the image you mind you just put in my mind of American beer it just makes me feel sorry for you, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I feel you, man. I'm, I'm not drinking the stuff anymore now. I'm just drinking this shitty non-alcoholic stuff. It doesn't get you drunk. It's like booze. It just doesn't get you drunk. It still makes you want to pee and bloats you, but like, you know, <laughs> whatever, man. It still tastes like shit. It's great. So. Sick. Yeah, okay, man. Have, let me throw in one more final question before. Yeah, one point. more question. Cool. All right, so. Thanks. So. How are things looking over there? Does it look like you're going to have a revolution over there in the next what, month, year, 10 years? What's it looking like? What's the practice like? Are there any, are there any organizations to stick out, but is particularly being Vanguard? Or does it just seem like a fucking hopeless struggle? I mean... Yeah, that's uh, that's a rough question. What does it look like in the United States? Are we going to have a civil war? Is it going to be a revolution? 10 years, 20 years? Is there a vanguard party? Uh, you know, man, I don't know that there's there's no single party on the left which could be a, uh, a leader of the revolution in terms of organization, people's strength, or... Not uh, one. No, there's not one at all, man, you know. Um... You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a member of CPUSA, and I, I want to say that, like, of any of them, like, the, the most spread out, networked, organized, and uh, capable uh, on the left is CPUSA. Um, but there there's CPUSA is not preaching a violent overthrow or preparing for a revolution. I mean, they're not doing any subversive activities. So, like, you know, they, well, if you're talking about a civil war, and is there a vanguard party to overthrow the, you know, the, the U.S. government? There's... There's really nothing in play in the United States like that right now. Everyone is so alienated and economically oppressed uh, to where, like, no one can see further than the hand in front of their face for the paycheck they need to survive. And uh, and it's it's rough, man. It is really rough out here. Uh, and, you know, with inflation being the way that it is and the housing crisis, I mean, the housing market is about to fucking bubble up and, and burst in this country, too. Um, you know, a second ago, gas prices were also, uh, you know, doing similar things to the middle class. And, uh, you know, I was telling, you know, a buddy of mine, it, like, you know, it used to be like the joke that like, you know, uh, Chris Farley is like, I live in a van down by the river. And then like within like 10 years, all the sort of people in my generation, like millennials are now all like, yeah, man, I, if, I, if I'm lucky, I can save up a few grand and buy a van to live down by the river at this point. I mean, it's become a question of like in 2008, it was like, who who is going to I mean, who's going to be unlucky and lose their home? And now it's like, who's going to be the lucky one that's going to be able to keep their home uh, at this point? I mean, it's uh, economic conditions are terrible in the United States. And, you know, when you say, is there going to be a civil war? I don't know if there's really going to be a civil war, but there may be a form of like a slow moving national divorce, uh, especially if Trump wins in 2024, uh, just as I think like the blue states here aren't going to have enough reason to play the game with the conservative states. You know, like there's already, a, uh, you know, a sort of sentiment of blue states breaking away 
on grounds of Roe v. Wade uh, and, and preserving, you know, additional rights or something. So, like, uh, th- there's been some chatter about that in articles I've read about, I mean, especially in the, the Atlantic talked about the possibility of blue states breaking away. Um, so, yeah, shit's rough in the United States, uh, economically, socially, um, and it's, you know, midterms are coming up. Great. We get to hear about that starting soon, you know, um, after the midterms, it's all, you know, 2024, two year election cycle bullshit. And it's all, it's all awful. Everything is terrible. And, uh, but thanks for asking about it. Cause, uh, I'm sure you guys will hear enough about it in your neck of the woods too. That it's like, fuck dude, why do y'all have to listen to stuff about elections two years out, uh, in a country that's, hasn't, you know, overweighted influence in the way the entire world is organized. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I've certainly got my criticisms of the U.S. population who are armed to the teeth to overthrow tyrants. Like, um, it's a, it's in their own constitution, but for some of the many socioeconomic reasons that you mentioned, you know, these people literally aren't given enough calories to have the energy to even want to fucking revolt. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's the same in jails. They're literally um, given enough just so they fucking can't fight back with this. And people, I'm begging you, and I'm genuinely begging you people, like, listening, especially people in the States. And we have got a bigger listener audience in the United States rather than the UK, and that frustrates me, but still, listen, people, like... We talk about these communist organizations and making a lot of money off like membership dues. You know, a lot of people give them money. Where does that go? Just put it towards saving the people. Yes, the people are hungry. Go and save them. Go and focus on the community. Meet the needs where they, where the needs can be met so that they've got the energy to turn the fucking hunger from capitalism into a hunger for socialism these are some of the strategies we need to do it's it was good enough for the fucking black panther party and it's fucking good enough for us today we just need to focus on it um it's it's you know these zoom meetings and you know these stalls selling papers aren't gonna go nowhere for not meeting the fucking masses needs and building the communities right so Thank you so much for all of that and deeply well thought out answers, great answers for those questions there. Can people get plugs? Where can they go, follow and support you, Jules Taylor, please? Well, thank you, comrades, for having me on once again. I really enjoyed our time together and I'm happy to, you know, come on again and try to be invited uh, and talk to you about whatever it is you want to speak about. You know, it was a fun time. Uh, so my name is Jules Taylor, and I host a podcast called No Easy Answers. It's a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. You can find that anywhere you find your podcast. I'm also a musician. You can just search my name and any of the major streaming platforms to search up Jules Taylor. And uh, you can find my music there. You can probably find my podcast in the same spot, too. And uh, I'm most active on Twitter, so you can follow me at, at @realjulestaylor. And... Um, other than that, I mean, I have links on any of those locations, and I would welcome any stalkers that may want to find out more about me. I'm talking to you. I'm breaking the fourth wall. Cool. Awesome. And as always, workers and the lumpen of the world, unite.